0: You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, March 6, 2022, at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. My name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of leading us in our time in God's Word this morning. And so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Genesis, very beginning. Genesis chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. So while you're getting set, and let me just get you ready to kind of listen to me for a little while, we'll, and we'll start with a little movie trivia. That's an easy way to get started, right? Movie trivia. I'm going to ask you a question. It's an easy one, I promise. It's not a trick question. Who here can tell me the movie that we get the phrase, we're not in Kansas anymore from? Maybe anyway, Tell me, Julia. Wizard of Oz. That's right. 83 years ago, can you believe it? 83 years ago, uh, the Wizard of Oz entered our collective conscience and and left us with a number of things, amongst which is the phrase, we're not in Kansas anymore. And and you hear people sometimes use that phrase whenever they find themselves in a situation uh, that doesn't feel normal. Like that which had been normal or expected isn't the case. And You might look at someone and go, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not where we thought we were and things aren't the way we thought they were going to be. And this morning, as we continue looking at the first three chapters of the book of Genesis and we come to Genesis chapter three, we're going to come to the place where we begin to understand why we're not, not just in Kansas anymore, but we're not in the garden anymore. And we're going to begin to understand the why behind the experiences of life in this world. And we're going to come to learn that it's going to take a whole lot more than just clicking our heels together three times to make all that has gone wrong right again. But before we jump into chapter 3, let me just remind you in a big sense of what we've seen in chapters 1 and 2. We, we have seen on display in a number of different ways The majesty of God's goodness and his might on display in the story of how things came to be. And that story kind of reached a capstone when God created both man and woman in his image and likeness and set them in the midst of the most lavish garden and gave them the calling as his image and likeness bearers to steward that garden to the fullest of its potential everything from chapter 1 and into chapter 2 that we saw and heard and imagined was indeed as good as our minds can get around that word good to actually be the garden was good the work was good the man and the woman were good their their unity their family it was good And those two chapters left us not only with the sense of that goodness coming out of the goodness of the creator, but it left us with a sense of just the lavish generosity of God. I mean, chapter 2 is just over and over again putting in front of us just the lavish kindness and generosity of the good Creator. And it's that lavishness and generosity that we then think about as we come into the beginning of what we have in our Bibles is chapter 3. But I want you to know that this chapter in the Bible is part of the story that we started last week chapter numbers, verse numbers, they kind of get in the way of the literature sometimes. This is actually part of one literary unit. I want to help you see it because it'll, it'll help you kind of understand the story. I made a slide and we'll see if it comes up. I don't know if it's going to come up on, on this one. Um, you probably won't be able to read it. if you, well, Look at that, can you read that? This is the way the story works and it's helpful for you to see it as you read it because sometimes chapters and verses get in the way. It actually started back in chapter two, verse four, Through verse 17, when we get the story of God creating man and putting him in the midst of that garden, and then it moves to verses 18 through 25 when he forms woman out of of the stuff, out of the side of man, and that family is established, and the chapter ends with that great refrain, they were naked and unashamed, and the story keeps going, though. What we have is chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it's the first of two conversations, Conversation one between a woman and a serpent, a snake, leads to chapter three, verse six through seven, where they ate from the forbidden tree. And you can see as the diagram goes that everything that happened before verses six through seven kind of begins to happen in reverse. A second conversation occurs, but it's not between the woman and the snake, it's between God and the man and the woman. And rather than the unity and the oneness that they had experienced back in the garden in chapters two, 18 through 25 now, there's distance and consequence that is being divided. And where the story started with God putting them in this garden, now they're going to be exiled from this garden. And all of it, as you can see in the diagram, swings on the hinge of what happens in verses 6 through 7. The story swings in one action right there. So, what started good in the garden is going to end in exile and our experience of the world. And this is kind of how it happens. So let's begin to trace it now through the actual verses, starting in verse 1. We're reminded that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And it's helpful. Just remember, right? We have to read this. We have to read it like humans and, and do the work to remember that at this point in the story, we are still in the midst of the goodness and generosity of the garden, right? All that God had created, the creatures of the land and the field and the air and the water, they're all good. Which reminds us as we read it, especially at this point in the story, snakes aren't inherently bad. It's one of those church things we kind of import into the story, right? At this point in the story, it's just another creature that God had made that Adam and Eve were to have dominion over. And the fact that here in the story, this serpent is described as more crafty, that doesn't necessarily in itself inherently mean evil. In fact, that word crafty is used all throughout the New Testament, especially in the Proverbs. It's used positively numerous times in the Proverbs, encouraging those who might otherwise be naive to learn wisdom in order to live. It's a shrewdness and a craftiness, but at the same time, when it's used negatively, it can mean guile, and you have to read the context of the story to understand how the word is being used, and we know because of where we are in the story, on, on, in our lives, on the other side of what happens here, that the context of, the, of this word here in the story is negative. We understand that there's activity to it, a negative implication, because we come throughout the scriptures to learn that this particular serpent is being used as, as an instrument of Satan. Satan. Initially, it's just an animal that God had created, and that was good, of whom they were to have dominion over, but now it is being used as an instrument of the enemy. And this serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, again, it's difficult as we read these first two chapters to put ourselves there, but you got to do it, put yourself there. At this point in the story, remember that everything that both Adam and Eve have experienced and are experiencing, the breath they breathe, everything that they see with their eyes, the sunset, the sunrise, all the sounds of the birds and the animals that they hear, all the fruit that they eat, that they taste, that they enjoy, all the conversation that they have together, everything that they experience right now is due in part solely to God's good word. He spoke, and it came into being. All that they experience is the product of God's word, the goodness and the majesty and the might of his word. And now this serpent is going to begin to bring that word into question. But when you consider all of the goodness that they've experienced, that they're literally experiencing in that moment, just the breath they're breathing, And the world that God has put them in, when you consider just the abundance of the goodness that they know, this question of God's word should be a non-starter, right? In the context of what they know and experience, it should be a non-starter. Shouldn't even be an issue. But we've got to read the story. And as you read it, pay close attention. This serpent didn't deny God's word he simply questioned it he just began to introduce an air of suspicion or an idea that maybe somehow god's word to them was subject to their judgment of its truthfulness or its goodness there's just the beginning of seeds of dissatisfaction that are being sown into the heart did he actually say that, and the insinuation of God not just being generous, but instead being stingy, is being introduced. The question, entirely ignoring the abundance of God's generosity and the abundance of God's goodness that they've experienced. And notice in the question, again, you have to read it slowly and read it for what it is, not for what we import into it on this side, for what it is. He doesn't create an argument. He doesn't input any new information. He just asks a question. But it's not an innocent question. You know, you've heard it all throughout your life from the beginnings when you went to school. We say it all the time. There's no such thing as a bad question. Well, there are. There actually are such things of a bad question. And it's not so much the content of the question, it's the intent of the question. And I want to say it this way because good questions, real questions, it is okay to have questions about who God is, His character, His nature, His faithfulness. It's okay to have questions about what it means to follow Jesus and the impact on our life. Good questions about life and faith and theology and integrity and living these things, those are good questions when we're trying to gain understanding. And the church should be a safe place to have those questions. I have questions. I wrestle with things with the Lord. It's a safe place to have those questions when we're after real understanding. And and for wherever we have not made the church a safe place for those questions, please forgive us. But this question, like other questions, is often tainted with the venom of the serpent. It's not after better understanding. That's not what is aimed at. At the core of this question is the introduction of suspicion around the nature of God's word and the character of the one who spoke it. So how is she going to respond? How is she going to respond? Standing in the midst of God's abundance and generosity, how does she respond? Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, "'We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden.'" But God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. There's a lot of things to go through here. I just want you to see the big things. And in his book on sin, Kevin DeYoung said this about this conversation. Three times in this conversation, the word of God is quoted and never is it quoted accurately. Once it's quoted in a misleading way, that would be the question that the serpent brought. Second, it's paraphrased with important changes. We'll see that's Eve's response. And then third, it's flatly denied. We'll see that as we come to the story. The first thing that Eve does as she responds is she paraphrases the instruction that God had given them. Chapter 2, verse 16, God said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But now, in response to this question... Eve leaves out the large and abundant every. And as one theologian said, her inexact, unenthusiastic rendition of God's word discounted God's generosity entirely. And as she put the generosity in the back seat, she then amplified what God said. She added to what God said. Because God never said they couldn't touch the tree. So now, with his generosity in the back seat, she amplifies the single restriction that he gave. The single restriction gets all the space and the airtime, as opposed to the fullness of what he had allowed. And, and then she softened something the Lord had said. Or as my wife says around our house, she nerfed it. She made it safe when she left out the surely in relation to God's judgment. When he said, surely, if you do this, you will die. His generosity takes a back seat. His restriction gets in the front seat. And then he softens the consequence of what would happen. It's not good. But if you just give yourself a moment, and we won't take a ton of time, but just give yourself a moment you know how this same cycle plays out in your own heart. We're understanding why it does that. When God's generosity and the fullness of his promises, and the fullness of his steadfast love and faithfulness takes a back seat in your heart. And the restrictions for our joy and his glory begin to take a front seat and we make those restrictions amplified, worse. We hyperbolize those things to what they never were. You remember when you were a kid, those of you that aren't kids and kids, you know what this is like because you do it too. Your, your parents will, will tell you something that you can go and do and then put a restriction around it for your safety. And the only thing we ever hear about is the restriction. And oftentimes that restriction isn't even what we said. It's amplified 10 times more. Hey, 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 don't, don't, don't punch your brother. Can you believe mom said I couldn't even touch him? Well, that's not what I said. I mean, you put a hug him. Put your arm around it. That's what I said. We have this pattern in our hearts. We do it at work. We do it in relationships. This is the root of where this thing comes from. Things aren't going well. And so in verse 4, the serpent doubles down. The serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so now where there was the insinuation of something about God's word and his character, now he is speaking a direct word in contrast to God's word. There is a head-on collision now between the word of the serpent and the word of God. The serpent has blatantly denied what God said. He sowed a, a seed of question, an air of suspicion, But now he declares God to be a liar. You're not going to die. That's just a scare tactic. He's just trying to keep you in your place. Did he really say you couldn't do that? He's holding out on you. In fact, he's holding you back. And you and I can read it and see what an utter farce that is. I mean, they're standing in the midst of the garden. All around them, as far as the eye could see, up and down and around, is nothing but a display of God's abundance and generosity to them. But now, with the seeds having been sown, the devil plays two truths and a lie with Eve. Yeah, if you eat that, your eyes will be open. It's true. Yeah, if you eat that, you'll begin to know the difference between good and evil. It's true. But then he lied. And he said, you won't die. Notice, because we tend to read back into this with our own experience and our own culture and the reality of the moments that we're in, that the lie that the serpent brings isn't the lie of God's non-existence. We tend to think about the lies of the devil and the lies of the enemy. And if you grew up in the church, you tend to think the opposite of that is then atheism. That's not at all what he says. He never denies God's existence. He never denies God's word. He never even denies God's instruction. He's perfectly happy for them and you to believe that God is real, to believe that he is powerful, to believe that he has given his word. What he wants is for you to doubt the goodness of that word and the goodness of the one who has given it. He's fine for you to believe in the existence. Ultimately, it's the goodness of the giver that he's after. That's essentially what temptation is. It's just the invitation to a false reality. It's an invitation to an idea or to a place or to a way of living or to an action that amplifies short-term benefit and minimizes long-term consequence. It's the invitation to a world where the truth about God is exchanged for a half-truth. God did give them a restriction, but it was for their joy. Tim Keller says it best when he says, when you are being tempted, you need to remember that you're being invited into a monstrous fantasy world, a distortion of reality, a place where pride will seem like self-esteem, Greed will seem like God's blessing. Lust will be a natural part of being a man or a woman. Rebellion is the right of every teenager. And gossip is helpful conversation. Anger can be seen as venting and vanity is feeling good about yourself. It's a monstrous fantasy world where the truth about God is exchanged for a lie. And sin is made to seem normal. And when sin and the fruit of sin is made to seem normal, that means that obedience or righteousness or trust in God's good word seems strange. That's the playbook. God's word seems strange. Sin and its fruit seems normal. Here is the root of what has gone wrong and why you and I continue to sin. In our hearts, we begin to doubt God's word to be true and doubt his word to be good. We doubt the giver of the word to be good. In 10,000 different ways, you, you say it, and you'll know how you say it in your heart. You'll know how you say it in your mind. Somehow the conversation will happen inside of you. Is his word really clear about this? Did he really say this? And if he did, is it really good or loving for me to obey it? Would he still want me to do that? Is what he said about this actually true? And if it's true, though, is it loving? Is it good? In 10,000 different places, we have that conversation. The majority of all of the cultural crises that are brewing and bubbling over at times inside the church, inside the body of Christ, are really around this reality. Is what God said about us, is what God said about himself, is what God said about marriage, is what God said about sexuality, is it really true? And if it's really true, is it actually loving though? Is it actually good? Did he really say You see, not all questions are good questions. Friends, the Bible is very clear that we cannot live our lives unaware of Satan's schemes. Sin abounds wherever you and I allow ourselves to be deceived about the truthfulness and goodness of God and his word. And whenever our heart gives space to growing doubt about the goodness of God, the giver of the the word, It's only natural that you and I would then begin to feel more free to revise different parts of his word. Minimizing certain parts, amplifying other parts, softening the edges around other things, letting ourselves off the hook for different justifications. This is why you and I do the things we do. Whenever the truthfulness and the goodness of God and his word is allowed to be doubted. You and I end up playing fast and loose with God's good word to his people. Did he actually say, and then a lie, you will not die? He tossed the bait, set the hook. He must not be good or else he wouldn't be holding out on you. Can he really be that good with these consequences in place? It's the same lies that still plague us today. This serpent directly attacked the two most prominent things about God that we see on display over and over again in chapters 1 and 2, that his word is true and that he is good. And so you've got to see the scene. See where you are in the scene. At this point, the question has been introduced, the lie has been stated, but they haven't followed the word of the serpent yet. They are still in the goodness of the garden. They are still living and breathing in the good. That's all they know. They don't know anything but the good at this point. They don't know what they don't know. And this is hard for you and I. This is where these chapters still are difficult for you and I because we only know life and experience life on the other side of this chapter. So we're bound by that experience when we come to this story. But that's not where they are yet. The more you begin to realize that, the more you begin to feel the weight of what they're being tempted to sacrifice and how infinitely precious it is. And so we've got to see how the story goes in verse 6. Remember from the chart, these are the verses where the whole story swings. In verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. All true things. All true things. No statements of falsehood there at all. All true. It was good for food. Which will begin to sound a lot like what we hear in the New Testament as the lust of the flesh. And it was a delight to the eyes. It was pleasing to the eyes. And it was desirable to make them like God. It sounds a lot like the pride of life. When she saw these things, and she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, this is the first direct mention of Adam. Everyone loves to point that out. But you should know in the conversation that the serpent had with the woman, every time you read in English the word you, it's plural. It's y'all. That's what it is. It's y'all or or you guys, depending on where you're from. It's it's plural. The grammar of the conversation makes the insinuation that For the entirety of that first conversation, Adam was standing right there. He was just standing there very silently and passively. And so some theologians will go down the track, and they may very well be right. It certainly isn't wrong if they go down this track. It it may very well be right in that you remember in chapter 2, verse 16, the instruction that God gave, he gave directly to Adam because Eve hadn't been formed yet. And so who would have been responsible to make sure everyone else understood the instruction that had been given? Adam. So maybe Adam really wasn't clear in what God had said to him and the instruction that he had given to Adam that Adam was then to give to Eve and to their offspring in the garden. Very possible. Sounds like it's probably what happened. Hard to imagine and That in the goodness of that garden, there would have been such an imperfect conversation on that side of the fault? I don't know. But what I do know is this Adam had heard directly from God the instruction that God had given him. Adam knew that what the serpent was saying was wrong. It's why later Paul will remind the church that it was Eve that was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. He had heard directly from God. Adam had a choice in the moment. And in the moment, he exchanged the truth of the immortal creator for a lie. And he stood by, he exchanged it for a lie about the goodness and character of God. And so they ate. And verse 7 says, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. In a moment, a knowledge came that they could forever not unknow. Never again could they unknow this. No one corrected me in between the services, so I'm going to go with it. I, I, I probably shouldn't make movie illustrations I've never seen, but I imagine it's something like what people talked about when you get plugged into the matrix. Like in a moment, all this information just came. They didn't know what they didn't know. And now they do. And they can't unknow it. It's there. And in a moment, the innocence, the nakedness and unashamed, the innocence, the vulnerability, the security evaporates. Their eyes are open and the first thing they do As they go and sew fig leaves together to make for themselves loincloths. In a moment, the security, the comfort, the transparency, the vulnerability, it's gone. Psychologist David Atkinson calls this the birthplace of shame. That sense, he said, of being uneasy with yourself at the very heart of your being. That inner drive in you to do something, to cover up the sense of inadequacy and shame that you feel, it's born right here the comfort, the vulnerability, the peace, the unity, the security, it's gone. It's gone. And their awareness, rather than driving them to God, began to drive them in some effort away from him. Even here, we're reminded that ever since the Garden. Every single one of us is exposed. Our sin, our guilt is on display. And ever since this moment in the garden, that guilt and that shame doesn't drive us to God for mercy. It somehow leads us in deception to believe that we could somehow hide from him in our guilt and shame that we can go to our little leaf stash and figure out how to sew the right leaves up and the right stuff up to figure out how to cover ourselves up. And here's the thing. I know it to be true. For some of you, this is your entire life just sewing together the best fig leaves you can find in the moment because we're so afraid of what people might think about us, so afraid if they really understood so afraid if we were to be found out. So much shame, so much guilt, so much fear, and yet our instinct, because of the garden here is to try to figure out ways to cover it up. Do you realize that as you read the story that Satan conveniently left out the guilt and the shame that was going to come? Somehow or another he forgot to mention the fear Nothing was said about the cost that they were going to pay. Rather, he lied. And now the relationship that they had experienced with one another is shattered. Naked and unashamed has now given way in a moment to naked and ashamed. They feel seen and they're scared about it. And so now they're immediately hiding parts of themselves from one another. Right? Read the story. The fruit that had been so pleasing to their eyes, so delightful and desirable, once eaten, now makes them afraid of themselves in front of someone else. Their nakedness becomes embarrassing. And their relationship to one another is fractured. And we'll see more of that in the stories to come. But it's not just their relationship, it's fractured. Their relationship with God is shattered. Instead of enjoying the fellowship with God that they had enjoyed, I mean, just the idea of God's presence with them in the garden that the stories talk about, rather than enjoying that fellowship, now they try to hide from God when he comes into the garden. They tried to hide parts of themselves from one another. But we'll see as we keep reading, they're going to try to hide their whole self from God. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees in the garden. Apparently, as they they heard the approach of God, which was familiar to them, whatever that was, it was familiar. He was coming to be with them in a very intimate way that was normal to them. Whatever that was, when they heard it, they realized all of a sudden that maybe these leaves aren't enough. And so those trees that had been created for their good for them to enjoy, that display the goodness of the Creator, they're now trying to hide behind because these leaves aren't going to be enough. Fear has been added on to the shame and the guilt, and they hide. And somehow they try to convince themselves that God must be unaware of their whereabouts. Snicker, but it's part of sin's delusion. Somehow we try to convince ourselves that we can hide from God, and he's unaware of those thoughts, those intentions, those attitudes and behaviors. David would memorialize this foolishness in Psalm 139 when he says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Have you thought about that lately? I mean, at moments, we all deceive ourselves into thinking that what we're thinking and what we're scheming, somehow God has no idea about. If I just don't tell my wife, if I just don't tell my friends, if I just don't verbalize it or actually act on it, it's okay. No one will know. It's not true. David goes on to say, where am I going to go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. One of sin's most devastating pathologies is this delusion that we live in to think that we can somehow hide from God. Adam and Eve instinctively don't go to him. They try to get away from him. But even here in the story, we see God seeking and we're going to see him finding. Look at verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? That's not a rhetorical, that's a rhetorical question. That's not a real question. It's a rhetorical question. Right? God knows exactly where he is and, and what's going on. But I had never thought about this and, and it never really caught my attention. I think I, I, we all tend to come and we read different things into this while we're reading it and we hear different voices when we read it. I never really read this and noticed that there's no hint or tone of accusation in God's voice and words here. No accusation at all. It's a very gentle, prodding question of Adam. He knows what he's done. Where are you? And Adam said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, again, Adam has a choice. He could have owned the reality of his disobedience before God. He could have thrown himself on the goodness that he has experienced since he took his first breath on the earth. All that he knew, everything he knew before he took a bite of that fruit, he could have thrown himself on God's goodness. It would have been a safe bet. But as we listen to him, and we'll spend more time on it as we're going to come back in the next couple of weeks, it seems that all he can focus on and what is first and foremost in his mind and even in his words, it's the crippling things that he's feeling, his fear and his shame, he was well aware that he had disobeyed God's instruction, that he had broken God's word, that he had believed a lie, yet all that he can seem to focus on is his own shame and his own fear, again One of the devastating consequences of sin is this utter preoccupation with these things. But We'll get to it more. The reality that we have to face at this point in the story, which is as far as we're going to get in this morning, is that if you and I are not going to own our own sin before God and trust his goodness, we're going to have to find a way to justify it. We're going to have to find a way to justify it in our own hearts to ourselves. We're going to have to find a way to justify it to those that it harms and it hurts. And ultimately, we're going to have to find a way to justify it before God who will call us to give an account. And you and I, because of Genesis chapter 3, have become professional sin justifiers. Professional sin rationalizers. We're going to watch next week how they do that. But we do this because we're just like our father Adam. Because Genesis chapter 3 is the story of us all. And there's more to this story. In fact, I'm going to be very honest with you. It's going to get darker before it gets a little brighter. But even here, there are glimmers of God's kindness and grace. Just take a minute to think back on this very simply Maybe it will be amazing to you if you think about it this week that such a massive shift in the story of the world swings on the hinge of such a simple act of taking something and eating it. All that has been shattered in our experience now of God's good world, all that we were created for that has been shattered because of sin. Finds its origin in the simpleness of taking something and eating it. Chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 led to all that was good being shattered. And Derek Kidner, who's probably one of the best Old Testament theologians, if you ever find a commentary from Derek Kidner, buy it and read it. Very accessible, he's probably one of the best. He so brilliantly said it, he said, It would be a good long while before another take and eat. Will be used now to bring renewal and salvation and healing to all that have been broken for all who believe. So you've got to remember that the night that Jesus would go to the cross in our place for our sins, he shared that Passover meal with his disciples. And Matthew records it in Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I have to believe that in Jesus' mind, that night at that table in that moment was Genesis chapter 3. I have to believe it. You took that fruit and you ate it based on the word of a serpent. Here, take this bread and eat it. It's my body. It is altogether better. It is altogether greater. I mean, what makes it better and greater and so significant? You have to remember that this same tempter that came to Adam and Eve in the garden Appealing to the lust of their eyes and the lust of their flesh and the pride of life in the temptation came to Jesus. He came to him in the wilderness after he had been fasting for 40 days and he said, Hey, why don't you turn those stones right there into bread? It'll taste good. It'll feel good. I'm sure it probably will smell good. Bread smells great. Go ahead and do it. I know you're hungry. And when that didn't work, he he look out over all these kingdoms of the earth. See them. Let your eyes take them all in. I'll give them all to you. Just bow down. And when that didn't work, he said, hey, throw yourself off the top of the temple. If you're the son of God, command all of your angels to protect you. Just imagine. Do that. No one will ever doubt you again. They will truly know exactly who you are. Go ahead and do it. He tempted him with the lust of his flesh, the lust of his eyes, and the same sinful pride of life. Yet Jesus didn't take the bait. Three times with each of them, he said, No, it's written. It's written. It's written in God's good word. And he relied upon and enjoyed that good word. And because Jesus held fast to that good word when he was tempted in the same place in the same ways where Adam and Eve didn't and you and I don't because he did, he and he alone is capable of paying the price for our sin, which is the very thing he did then after that dinner when he went to the cross and his body was nailed to that tree, the perfect, sufficient sacrifice for sin. You see, each of us are in Genesis 3. Each of us, like Adam and Eve, have taken and eaten the lies of the devil. So please hear Jesus this morning. Take and eat. This is my body. Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The question at this point that you have to deal with in your heart, is who speaks a better word this morning? Who speaks a better word? Whose voice will you listen to? Friends, you don't have to play games to run and try to hide from God anymore. Hear Jesus. Take and eat. He has paid for your sin. He has paid the price. He has taken the consequence that you and I deserved, so that we don't have to try to run from him and create our own fig leaves and our own coverings and our own provisions, so that you can come to him and know the fullness of his forgiveness and cleansing. This morning, I'm going to pray for us. this is what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to give you some space in silence, too. Consider God's word this morning. And I want you to know for some of you this morning, this is going to be the day of salvation for you. God has begun to open up your eyes to the goodness of his word, to the goodness of his son, and to the deadly danger of the lies of the enemy. All you have to do is to take his word at face value, to believe what he says about himself and to give yourself to him. George Whitfield, great evangelist, used to end a lot of his meetings by singing a verse that he wrote. It wasn't a full song. There wasn't music for it. It was kind of like a poem, but he would sing it. And it best encapsulates how you and I have the opportunity to respond this morning. I'll read it to you. Whitfield would sing, God of my salvation. I'm not going to sing it. Hear and help me believe. Here you go. Hear and help me believe. Simply what I now draw near Your blessings to receive. Full of guilt I am. That's me, full of guilt. But to your wounds for refuge I flee. Friend of sinners, spotless lamb, your blood was shed for me. We're gonna give you a moment to reflect on God's word, to consider God's word, how God might be calling you to respond. And then after we sit for a moment for all who have believed into Jesus in faith. You're going to be invited to come forward to receive communion, to take, to eat, and to proclaim your confidence in the steadfast love of the one who created you. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll take a moment of silence. Father, we thank you this morning that you did not leave us to ourselves to find a way out of our sin. You didn't leave us to ourselves to find a way back to the garden. You didn't leave us to ourselves to try to figure out how to make right all that our own sin has made wrong. You provided for us the necessary payment, the necessary sacrifice, the necessary remedy for our sin. Lord, now we need your Holy Spirit to open up our eyes to see your kindness, your generosity, your faithfulness, your power, your truthfulness, in your Son, Jesus, that our hearts will be given over to him fully and freely, that we would want nothing more in this life and for eternity than to know him and to be with him and to have him. Let that be greater than any lie, any temptation, any offer the enemy of our soul would bring to us. Or for that to be that clear, that bold, and that great, it takes your spirit to work in us. And so we ask that you would do that very thing. In Jesus' good name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, please visit us online at redemptionhill.com.